0: Hey baby, I hear the blues are calling. Tossed salads and scrambled eggs.
1: Okay, Rory, you ready for it? Here it comes. From Twitter and other places, but I saw this one on Twitter. My favorite Seattle nickname: Americanos. I kind of like it. It's a jokey one, but I kind of like it. I like the cranes. The cranes. Okay, I'm doing this blind, but I've heard Elliot Freeman reference the Krakens a couple times. Mm -hmm. I didn't look it up. Krakens a
2: bird? Is it a bird? I thought it was a large sea monster. A huge, huge sea monster. Okay, there you
1: go. I clearly don't know my uh, Seattle mythology mythology,
2: uh, well enough. But in all seriousness, give me the emeralds. emeralds. Emeralds I want the emeralds. I think you could have a really uh, nice logo. I think you could have some sharp colors. The only thing is that... With Vancouver having green and that blue color yeah. and Dallas having the bright green, I don't know what color scheme Seattle is necessarily going to use. Like, you're going to use the same color or something close to what your top rival is going to Green's be? Green's in there. But you're the Emerald city, city. You have to use green. What do
1: you think of Sockeye? Could you call a team Sockeyes? Because it does have a distinctly
2: sock in the mouth yeah. hockey feel. It's you very know, Seattle. It's very sea. It comes off to me as very minor league baseball. Yeah, that's true. Yeah.
1: Well, whatever it is, we are welcoming the 32nd franchise to the NHL, and we absolutely want to carve out some time to kick off this edition of Tape to Tape to talk about Seattle. Also going to look at a couple really, really, really good American right wingers and think about what might be in the near future – for Phil Kessel, and maybe even Patrick Kane. I think in one case, we we do know what's in the near future, but we're going to theorize and have some fun anyways. And then, to close out this pod, I was recently in Montreal, always a great place to spend a weekend, spend a hockey weekend, and while I was there, I sat down with Sportsnet's own Eric Angles, and friends, we went deep on the Canadians. We really nerded out, got to uh, some players who have made a huge difference for the Canadians, talked about the perception of management, where the team is, 30,000-foot view, and, and went quite granular even with some guys who have been in and out of the lineup and what their future might be with the team. So make sure, especially if you're a Habs person, stick around for that conversation with Eric at the end. But Rory, you were all over expansion. We all knew it was coming Just give me your thoughts on the NHL going to an even 32 for 2021.
2: 2021-22 2021-22 2021-22 22, 2021, 22. Yes. sorry that's it's right it's a tongue twister that's right <laughs> um, well this is where it was going to go right everybody saw this coming from a mile away and it kind of closes the door on Quebec City for the time being which is poor, sad
1: the poor old relocation uh, yeah. spot right it's got it's clearly designated for that and I think there was a time we thought maybe Carolina maybe Florida yeah. but that's, those ships have probably sailed
2: yeah for now at least you never know you never know it could still but pop up but maybe the up.
1: Tampa Rays will still become yeah. the Expos we'll see <laughs> that's
2: right if you build that they may not come that arena is still sitting there Um, look like the NHL pretty much wanted Seattle in at the same time as Vegas so this is no surprise that we're getting a team up there finally into the American Pacific Northwest you got a nice geographical rival for the Vancouver Canucks now obviously the Battle of Alberta is its own thing so now Vancouver can have their own team does
1: this mean there's 20% less hate for
2: Toronto and Vancouver
1: (laughs) now they can redirect
2: it no (laughs) absolutely not and it's just going to be fascinating to see the whole expansion draft and the repercussions from that again, because Vegas has set the bar of oh, expectations so high, precedent. right? What a wild precedent. Just just absolutely amazing. And, and, you know, teams, the other teams, are going to have learned something from that whole experience. Or do they trade differently to set up their rosters a little differently? You know, do they do they swap draft picks with each other to... Uh, protect guys and not leave so many players open to uh, Seattle or what does Seattle learn from what Vegas did? Obviously the idea of getting a good coach like Vegas did with Jerry Gallant, maybe there's already one there and Dave Tippett, he's kind of left the door open, but he hasn't committed to being the new coach either. Um, you definitely want a, a top notch coach to start off with there, but um it's going to be really neat because you can't even project who's going to be available three years from now. The whole league is going to look completely different. The, the division that they're going to be playing out of is the weakest in the league right now, arguably, the Pacific. But it's going to be totally different. Knows, Vancouver might be right. the power in Absolutely. that division a couple of years. Like, Vancouver is going to have to be protecting at that point Elias Petterson, Brock Besser, Quinn Hughes, maybe Jack Hughes, whoever they get in this draft if he plays in the NHL uh, in the next two years, which is probably likely. All these guys are going to have to be protecting protected Thatcher Demko. What do the LA Kings look like at that point? What do the Anaheim Ducks, San Jose Sharks, are they fading out at that point? It's really, really tough to predict, but it's going to be fascinating to see what this second expansion team, following the exact same rules as Vegas, except they don't get to pick off of Vegas' roster, what kind of success does that team have right out of the gate? One thing that I just
1: think it's worth remembering is for so long, you know, and through the Early to mid aughts, whenever expansion came up, the default reaction based on what we were seeing on the ice was: "There's not enough talent to support more teams." Yeah. Are you crazy? And it's pretty cool that we've gotten to a place where that's not even really a discussion anymore. Just this influx of youth and talent and focus on skill. No one's saying, "Oh my god, we're gonna water down the pool that much yeah. more."
2: Yeah, and I was actually asked about that a couple of days ago. And in one way, yeah, you're gonna be, you know your player pool is going to be bigger. There's going to be more jobs available. But at the same time, like the player pool itself has been opened up to all sorts of different kinds of players over the last 10 years. You can think of a number of guys who are sub six foot who do one thing well, and that's passing or shooting the puck or whatever it is, but it's not being physical and along the boards they wouldn't have never stood a chance to be an NHL player years ago. Like Johnny Gaudreau was a late round draft pick, right? And he was way off the radar. Now that type of player can come right in here and star. So because the league has changed in a way where more skill players are being accepted into the league than ever before, it also means that you're not going to be so watered down by a new team coming in. So yeah, you're going to have a 32nd team, but I think that just means that you're going to have, more even more skill players filling out that lineup than you would have in an expansion team 15 years ago well established
1: hockey market a, a place where there's an appetite for the game a built-in rivalry with Vancouver a city the league has long wanted to get in the only question left at this point is when do they share their building with a basketball team because I think yeah. it seems inevitable that yeah. the NBA is coming there as well so great to see hockey coming to Seattle Twenty-one twenty-two pushed back a year beyond when Seattle had originally gee, sort of why. hoped. But yes, gee geez, I wonder why. Well <laughs> the only thing more fun than talking about CBAs is contract ramifications. So stick around for that, folks. <laughs> Just kidding. It's always important to look at what guy X signing means for Guy Y and with a group of RFAs out there who were monitoring the Nylander situation closely. Now that it has played out, we have to revisit what it could mean for a few of those players. We're also going to talk about Phil Kessel and Patrick Kane coming up in the next block on Tape to Tape. The Tape to Tape podcast is brought to you by the GMC Terrain. With cargo space that'll fit the entire family's hockey bags and available all-wheel drive to keep them safe on icy roads, the GMC Terrain is the compact SUV thoughtfully designed with you in mind. GMC Terrain, we are professional grade. If I told you in September this was gonna be the number, or this is what they're going to get to, would the Neilander camp have agreed to it in September and would Dubas have agreed to it in September?
2: Probably not. You know, I I do think that this is a little bit outside
1: of what the Leafs thought they could get them for. You know, not significantly so, but you know, they held firm on 6.5 million for for quite a long time. You know, maybe thought they would get to the Pasternak deal at 6.67. But, you know, I don't think 6.96 where they ended up would have been something they would have just taken out of hand. And and I think the reason it took so long is that, you know, I doubt the Newlander cap would have taken that either. I mean, they were in the eights for, you know, into October, into the season for sure. Rory, we have mercifully been able to stop speculating about the future of William Nylander. His future is blue and white after all. But what does the future hold, do you think, for some of these very, very good hockey players who are soon to be in the same RFA situation as Nylander
2: was coming out of their entry-level deal? So this is a storyline we're going to be talking about right up. Through next summer, probably because this is a until the next holdout. Yeah, until the next one. Yeah, this crop of RFA's is is really going to change the market in some big ways. I think because there's a lot of big, big names. Obviously, we're going to set the tone here. But the way you have to look at it from a comparables perspective is not directly at somebody else's AAV. So, for example, people, uh, some people in Toronto were really upset, confused. How could William Nylander? get paid an AAV higher than what David Pasternak is getting. And, and the reality is that David Pasternak signed that contract against a smaller cap hit. So his percentage against the cap at the time was bigger than what William Nylanders is going to be when it really comes into play next year. This this year's a little bit of a, a it's a bit of an anomaly because he was a late signing. Um But it's still, it's so interesting. So, like, at the top of the heap, you have Connor McDavid. He signed for 16.67% against the cap, which was a $12.5 million AAV. Even if you assume that Austin Matthews is going to sign for less of a percentage than Connor McDavid, I think it's very reasonable to expect that he's also going to get $12.5 million uh, against the cap. That's a, a smaller percentage, Uh, than what McDavid would have done, but it's still higher than some of these other guys. The next tier after that would be Jack Eichel, who signed for 13.3% against the salary cap, which would be $11 million against an $83 million salary cap. And some people are wondering, well, can Mitch Marner get Jack Eichel money and all this stuff, and thinking he's equal to $10 million, which is what Jack Eichel currently gets on his AAV. And for me, it's hard to see Marner getting that kind of money because what do Connor McDavid and Jack Eichel have in common? They're both centers, and you don't you have to go down a little bit further to start getting to the wingers. And you know the benchmark for uh, the one side is Johnny Gaudreau, who signed for 9.2% against the salary cap, which would equal 7.7 million dollars against an 83 million dollar uh, salary cap. David Pasternak is another interesting one, 8.9%. He signed against his cap, which would equal $7.4 million against the cap. I mean, that's a long way to fall. So, like, how does, not just Mitch Marner, how does Patrick Laine fit into this? The only guy you could remotely compare to Patrick Laine would be Alex Ovechkin, who signed a 13-year contract before they clamped down on those, which was a percentage a little bit higher than even Connor McDavid signed for. So Patrick Lainey probably isn't going to get that kind of money. Mikko Rantanen currently leading the NHL in scoring, also a winger. How does he fit into all this? Like, is he closer to, you know, Taylor Hall signed for 10% against the cap, which would be $8.3 million? Or is it more Nikita Kucherov, who, unlike these other guys, he signed a bridge deal and then he's not going to sign, he's not going to go into his long-term deal until next season, which is going to count for 11.95% against the cap the day he signed it. If you were to sign that kind of money, like you're talking huge, huge money for a guy against an $83 million salary cap, maybe that's where Patrick Laine fits in. That's certainly, I think, where Mitch Marner would fit in because Kucherov left some money on the table, so it kind of throws this whole thing off off track a little bit. But it's just fascinating to me that you think, oh, these guys are going to get paid $10 million, $11 million, when really when you look at the percentages, the only guys that you could compare those levels of, of AAV to on an $83 million salary cap are the high-end centers who have already signed. So because so many of these guys in this RFA class next year are wingers, They're just going to shift the the whole market completely. And it's just going to be interesting to see where they end up and where they end up compared to the centers who have already signed.
1: You know who was a really good player who did not sign a second contract with the team that drafted him? Old Philly Kessel. Traded to the Leafs because he wasn't going to sign a new deal with the Bruins. Subsequently traded to Pittsburgh. You may remember him playing a huge role in the penguins winning back-to-back cups if pittsburgh was to make a move because we know the penguins are trying they're trying to win stanley cups with Have crosby and, and malkin yeah there's a couple teams out west that kind of offer a little intrigue maybe make a little sense match wise we're doing fake trade on the fly it's not real fake <laughs> trade It's fake
2: trade on the fly yes i mean there's yeah a few really interesting teams the one that jumped out at me was minnesota Um, A, Phil Kessel is from Minnesota, and he's going to have some control over where he goes with his uh, trade clause that's in there. So I think he would be probably open to going back home. Why not? I mean, Minnesota's window isn't closed. And the thing that Minnesota has here that not a lot of other teams have is a fair amount of depth. Like, they could give Pittsburgh back a couple of NHL players because you're not assuming that that Pittsburgh is going to trade Kessel for... A first round pick and a prospect or something like that. Like, you are still trying to get the Stanley Cup, and that's what Minnesota can offer you. If they can do something around Charlie Coyle, you know, Nino Niederreiter has lost a lot of value and gets paid too much money $5.25 million against the salary cap. But would they take both of those players? And now Minnesota has a second line right winger and Phil Kessel alongside Miko Koivu and Zach Parise. Probably shortens their window a little bit because they get older. Pittsburgh gets a little bit more depth. You put one of those guys with Sidney Crosby or Evgeny Malkin, you assume they're going to catch fire and, and be pretty productive players more so than they are in Minnesota. Do you have to go a little bit deeper? Is it a Jordan Greenway, a little bit of a younger player? whatever it is, like Minnesota has NHL caliber options and multiple ones that they could send back to Pittsburgh to help them fill out their depth, which yeah. is really what they're getting it,
1: at. It feels like if they move Castle, it'd be
2: a one for three kind of thing. Yeah, and Jim Rutherford, GM for the Penguins, has talked about, um, and even before the, the trades he's already made is uh, – his stars are scoring and he's not concerned with those guys. It's everybody else outside of Malkin Crosby and Kessel. No one is being productive. And that's really hurting this team right now, which leaves me puzzled why you would then trade Phil Kessel, who is one of your more productive players. But if you are getting back two or three guys who are going to be good compliments alongside one of your two big centers and can score at a reasonable rate. And you can, and you, like I said, you have two or three of those guys, then maybe it spreads it out enough. But I don't know. I'm just I'm just really confused why they'd be looking to move Kessel. It would really have to be the right deal.
1: Off oh, Phil, I think there's a lot of people who still have a, a soft spot for a guy. <laughs> it just, uh, <laughs> just kind of gives it to you straight, old Philly Kessel. Um, and, hey, man, don't ever question the guy's offensive ability because no. he knows what he's doing out there. So does Pat Kane, and... Look, Rory, this isn't an actual conversation unless acknowledged that. We we understand the Blackhawks are still trying to figure out a way to win with this core. They have, uh, you know, the pretty big trade, I would say, getting Perlini and Strom for Nick Schmaltz. Mm -hmm. But at some point, if things don't pick up, I mean, we're talking about a team that's creeping toward the absolute bottom of the barrel in the Western Conference. I mean, you're looking at a guy in Kane who's 30 years old, um, I think there was a time when, when he and Tave signed those matching uh, $10.5 million deals that, um, you know, the people, their hair was blown back a little bit. But, I mean, you look at what Pat Kane gives you. He's still giving you over a point per game. Mm-hmm. He's still absolutely one of the most lethal guys On the attack, he he just turned 30 in November. Mm -hmm. He's actually only signed up for four more seasons after this. So, I mean, you know, he's going to be 34 years old. You would expect a good player all the way through there. I've just always had this fantasy that as Chicago descended and Buffalo ascended, the hometown (laughs) boy could get on the Sabres somehow. So, you look at a a team in Buffalo that has four first-round picks over the next couple years. I mean, even a guy like Casey, Casey Middlestad, if you could... I mean, if if there was ever a chance to jump in and get someone as good as Kane OPS as noted uh, a hometown guy as well, I just wonder if there would be something to be done there. But, I mean, we were talking about it away from the microphones. Uh, maybe some question as to exactly how much staying power these Sabres have just mm. this second.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm I tend to be a believer in them, and I think— The X factor there is Carter Hutton has been playing so well, he's been able to patch over some of their problems. But Andrew Berkshire did a very good piece for Sportsnet.ca on Thursday that you should check out if you haven't already, looking at the Sabres and analyzing are they for real or not, and he found out that... There's a lot of smoke and mirrors here. There's a lot of problems in the way they play. They give up a ton of high-quality chances, don't get a lot of them themselves outside of the Eichel-Skinner uh, combination. And it would seem to suggest that uh, some of what they're doing is very unsustainable. Even on that 10-game winning streak they went on, a lot of those games were won in extra time by one goal, which those games can go either way. So that 10-game winning streak could have easily been a 10-game losing streak if it goes the opposite direction. I wouldn't go for Kane if I was them, especially no? considering the price tag I assume it would take, which would be pretty hefty, because I would worry about doing something the auto senators did, which was that Matt Duchesne trade where you trade out a bunch of futures and then a year on you're like, oh, we're Oopsie. not that far along. Yeah. yeah, you jump the gun a little bit and they seem to overlook some of these signs that maybe they weren't as good as they were the year they made it to the Eastern Conference Final. They were the only team that year that came into the playoffs allowing more goals than they had scored. Um, they had you know, negative shot metrics. Like It, it looked like they were kind of on a tenuous spot there, and they went for it anyway. And that's what I'd be worried about with Buffalo. Like I would want to make sure that I'm clear of this rebuild before I do anything big and bold like that. The, the team that I would be Kind of interested to see, and this is probably a long shot because Patrick Kane has full control with his no move clause. But it's a team that has trade history the Chicago Blackhawks, the Columbus Blue Jackets, who are probably about to lose both Panarin and Bobrovsky. So it's going to free up a ton of salary cap room for them. They could probably easily absorb the ten and a half million dollars that Patrick Kane is going for, and a lot of their big guys, Cam Atkinson. Alexander Wenberg, although he's been a little disappointing this year. Uh, Their defenseman, Seth Jones. Zach Wierenski is going to get a contract this year that I assume is going to be a long term. All these guys are locked in for a a long while. So if you now put a $10.5 million contract on top of that as the cap keeps going, I mean, that would definitely patch the hole of losing Panarin. It's just a matter of Kane wanting to go there, which you could understandably see maybe he doesn't, but it's interesting. All
1: right. Also fun to talk about. If you're me, anyway, the so Montreal Canes with Eric Engels. The man knows the team inside out, so stick around. Eric Engels and myself, live, sort of live, from Brassard, Quebec, on Tape to Tape. Looking to stream over 500 NHL games blackout-free? Sportsnet Now is the product for you. Available to anyone over the internet, Sportsnet Now gives you 24-7 access to Sportsnet's channels, including content not available on TV. You can stream on the go or at home on your big screen from the most popular devices, including
2: smartphones and tablets, Apple TV, Xbox, PlayStation, and Chromecast. Sign up for as long as you want and cancel whenever you'd like. You can also stream the NBA, MLB, Premier League, all your favorite Sportsnet original programming, and more. Visit snnow.ca for more details. Welcome back to Tape to Tape. As noted, I was
1: in Montreal watching the Canadians last weekend and had the opportunity to, number one, eat with Eric Angles, which is always great. The man is a foodie. The last two times I've been to the city, he's taken me to great places, a French bistro once, went to a great lunch spot, had some amazing rotisserie chicken. So shout out to Angles, who is uh, an amazing tour guide that way. But of course... He's also a guy who knows the Canadians inside out and we wanted to take the opportunity while I was there to sit down and really just go deep on the team. So the Friday before the Canadians played two weekend games against the Rangers and Sharks, we sat down at uh, Brossard, the team's uh, training facility. Right before practice to talk about a whole bunch of things, big picture, uh, some more focused stuff. Uh, just to give you an idea, friends, we talked about Nikita Sherbak, who never played a game for the Canadians this year. And that was the day before he actually got waived and picked up by the L.A. Kings. So just keep that in uh, in mind when you're listening to it. We did record it. 1 week ago but uh, everything stands up and if you're interested in the Canadians you definitely want to hear what Eric has to say about an assortment of things. So without further ado here is my conversation with Sportsnet's Eric Engels. Okay Eric right off the hop correct me if I'm wrong you picked Montreal as your preseason surprise club. Why was that?
0: Well I had an inclination that they might uh defy the odds with their start to the season I think they knew how important that was going to be and I also had the value of watching them every day in training camp before making that prediction and what I saw from very early on even from day one was the commitment level that this team had to playing as a team and employing the system that Claude Julien had designed for them with the help of Dominic Ducharme and Luke Richardson and Kirk Muller you know like this is a team that obviously doesn't have Although I think they're defying that too. Some of the high end talent that we see on other teams, or at least the depth of that high end talent, like Toronto has, uh, you know, I I don't think any team really necessarily compares to them up front, you know, but the Canadians are certainly further down the pecking order of teams that would. And they knew that the only way that they were going to defy the odds is to come together as a team and have, you know, the sum of their parts add up to something else. So it's. I wasn't that surprised with the way they started the season in spite of the fact that they were playing some really quality competition at the beginning of the season, their schedule kind of allowed for it with the space in between games. And I wasn't that surprised when November hit that things would get a bit tougher, especially in the long absence of Shea Weber and and start to feel that. And then when you lose a Paul Byron and a Joel Armia who were key possession drivers and versatile players for the Canadians, you know, that was going to have its effect. But I think now people are looking at the Canadians and say, okay, the course has corrected here. Um, I think you know we're talking right now on the the heels of a weekend where they're going to play two straight games against New York and San Jose and they've lost five games in a row but over the last four they've played really good hockey and they just you know they had 93 shot attempts against uh, the best possession team in the league in Carolina and lost 2-1 with 49 shots on Curtis McElhinney so it's not like they're playing bad and now Weber's back and Price has stabilized so I think Let's see how they handle the adversity before we start making proclamations about who they really are.
1: So, this puts us in interesting territory, and you've been writing about this recently because before the season, even though people were loath to use the word rebuild, as is kind of the case in every NHL city, there was a.
0: The Not necessarily ca- people. Maybe Mark Bergemeyer sure. was loath to use that word. But, but they yeah. were
1: acknowledging this was, you know youth was the focus and now here we are as you said team starts better than expected without the benefit of price being himself for much of that time without shea weber at all where are they now in terms of a willingness to say hey you know what we're in this in this league now things change so fast we didn't necessarily think we'd be here could you see a scenario where they do go out and maybe give up something to get something that helps them right now
0: yeah you look at how competitive they've been and the temptation is going to be there for Mark Bergevin. That temptation is real. I spoke to Mark Bergevin at the beginning of the season. You know, he was adamant. I did an interview with him, an exclusive for sportsnet.ca where he really opened up about not only himself, but the way he views the team and some of the decisions he made that had, had them going in the direction uh, that they're going in. And he, he was adamant that in spite of how focused they are on the team's future and securing that, his expectations were that they'll make the playoffs this year and you talked to all the players in their room that was their expectation too and certainly you look at the way Claude Julien is coaching this team he, that's what he's angling for that's his job and we've mentioned what they've been able to do in that time and 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 without Jay Weber and with Carey Price not at his best how could they not see themselves as competitive enough to tempt Mark Bergevin to doing something for the now and The the real question for me, and then I posed it in a recent column at Sportsnet, is: Are they willing to do that for a stopgap solution or a short-term fix? I think, you know, ideally, Mark Bursevay, if he's going to help this team, and we're probably in agreement that it's on the back end, yeah, he's got to look for an option that has some upside to it, or potentially, you know, is under contract for a significant portion of time and helps them further along the way down the line, versus just this year and next year, or just this year.
1: So let's go back to a time Habs fans probably
0: don't want to revisit last year. Pretty
1: safe to say things really went off the rails and maybe it felt at its worst when, you know, there's Max Petretti around the trade deadline, you know, talking at his locker about how he never wanted to leave and the team had terrible results. Weber was out. It was clearly things had gone, you know, really awry. And I don't know if we would say it's night and day now, but How would you say the perception around Bergevin specifically has changed given now when you look at, even a couple years ago, the prospect cupboard was quite bare. Now we've gone through 2017-2018. By consensus, the Canadians have have had a couple good drafts there. You know, Kotkiniemi gets picked third overall. The day that happened, I think a lot of people thought they were going to regret making that pick because they passed on the likes of Kachuk and Philip Zidina, and who knows, maybe they still will, but it sure looks pretty good right now. Are we in black and white territory in terms of what we thought of this team, big picture, eight, nine months ago versus today?
0: Well, I I want to tackle the most relevant question you asked there, which is about Bergevin, because prior to this season, I think the the level of trust in his ability – was as low as I've ever seen for like going back to Pierre Gauthier managing this team in the dark hours of 2012 Mike or getting whatever. Traded in game. <laughs> yeah, I mean, faith in management was about as low as could be, and expectations for the team coming into the season were as low as I've seen them in not only 12 years of covering the Canadians, but my lifetime as a 35 year old living in Montreal. just the expectation was this team was messed up beyond repair last year and not much was done to solve the issues. Well, if Mark Bergevin had his worst summer as general manager in 2017, and I don't even think there's a debate about that with the moves he made, you know, Carl Osner being in, in Laval in the AHL right now is evidence to the point. 2018, the summer that he had was spectacular. The move that he made, and the day that it was made, June 15th, Alex Galchenyuk for Max Domi, the fans were apoplectic about the Canadians giving up on Galchenyuk and feeling that they mismanaged him while he was here. And that, you know, here's a an established 30 goal scorer being traded for a guy with a career high of 36 goals. I was really happy to be a voice of dissent on that whole thing. Looking good right now. <laughs> I, like, it comes with it, knowing the players and knowing who they are not just who they are i don't want to indict alex galchenyak's character you know in saying this but like you need to evaluate the whole picture not just the player and their talent max domi for whatever reason felt that he was going to do really well in a market like this and everybody around max domi felt he was going to do really well in a market like this and i was of that opinion in speaking to the people who were around max domi the first thing i did when that trade was made was call shane Doan, and if there's anybody who knows Max Domi well and saw him in, in Arizona for all those years and played with him and understood the qualities of the player, it was him. And he said a couple things in that interview that we ran the day after Galchenyuk was traded for Domi that, that really reaffirmed in my mind that the Canadians were going to potentially win this trade. Now, it's early. We don't know where it's going to go, but Max Domi is a point-of-game player with the Montreal Canadiens and at center. And right now… Uh, there's conversation in Arizona about Alex Galchenyuk moving to the wing now that they have acquired Nick Schmaltz in a deal. So, that's one big check in Bergevin's box. Another is the Patraeiti trade. The Patraeiti trade, which never should have been a win for the Canadians, considering how public the nature of that situation was, and how, how long it went through the
1: summer. And- yeah, I
0: mean, Mark Bergevin was in a terrible spot to get a, a better return. Than what he was giving up in an established perennial 30 goal scorer. And, you know, Nick Suzuki was a, was a great ad. It, it adds to that depth picture that you were mentioning, Kok Niemi, Ryan Palin coming up at center. Nick Suzuki potentially is an option there, but might be relegated to the wing because the depth at center has become that much greater with Domi in the fold. So, you know, you look at that, wow. And then Thomas Tatar is being paid by Las Vegas. To play for the Montreal Canadiens as a throw into this deal that also included a 2019 second round pick which gives the Canadiens 10 picks in the draft I mean that deal was a magic trick it was a magic trick and Tatar on his own with his production so far this year has basically made it a clean win for the Canadiens it was a win when they got Suzuki in the second round pick but now with Tatar outperforming Pacioretty in virtually every category and with the way the Canadiens Started their season. How could you not say this? This is a total turnaround for Bergevin and the way the fans perceive him now because of it. Well, let's just say he's in a much better place than where he was at in September.
1: All right, let's zone in on a few guys. We're gonna nerd out a little here, but hopefully the Habs fans will stick with us. We've been talking a bit about the D, so I'll we'll start there. Victor Mete, Noah Julson. What do you think are the long term, you know, two three year down the road hopes for these guys? Are we talking, you know, Mete because of the way he moves? Are we talking first pair? That's the hope. Or is he more of a, you know, within the top four? And where do you see Juleson long-term?
0: Yeah, I think Victor Mete right now, you know, like the first six, seven, eight games of the season, he really struggled. Uh, You know, he was on for a lot of five-on-five goals against. I think that was a statistic that was brought up frequently as people analyzed his play. His play stabilized significantly. uh, And then, you know, he got relegated to third-pairing minutes. And some of the warts in his game, just a natural fact of him being... Small and being twenty years old, you know, not fully physically matured yet. They were a parent, you know. He's the way Claude Julien put it before Mete was sent to Laval is if he's going to mostly focus on containing, that doesn't work well for in zone coverage. You know, they want him to be aggressive, stick on puck, anticipating the play and getting there first with his speed, so that he can front players and he can break up plays and start the puck going the other way because he has that ability has all those abilities needs to go find confidence at the American Hockey League level and bring it back so he can be trusted in a bigger role top end I think Victor Mete could be a really good number three defenseman and if he has to be a number two well then you know it sure helps playing with Shea Weber yeah it might depend who he's paired with right yeah (laughs) you know you look at Noah Juleson solid defensively won't give you much offensive contribution skates well moves the puck well uh shoots the puck well very physical block shots you know you could see mete and julson being the future number three and number four of this team uh, and they're not far off from being that you know they may be in those roles and out of place with the depth that the canadians have on defense by the end of this season but inevitably the more experience they gain in that role they will grow into it and that that i think is where both those players project and it's interesting we started training camp and they were a pairing here. And it wouldn't surprise me if they were a pairing down the line if the Canadians could bolster their depth between now and the trade deadline, potentially on the third pair. And and over time, they can make a a pretty good second pair for this team. A couple guys on the fringe for
1: sure, but I think there's still interest in these players. One is Charles Houdon, who's been scratched a few times now, um, some bodies coming back from Montreal. Uh, Do you think he is a Canadian for? a number of years to come. And also, I still think there's interest in Nikita Sherbeck because he was a first-round selection in 2014. Is there a future for that guy with the Montreal Canadiens? Well, let's
0: deal with the first guy because he's probably the most polarizing player in the the Canadiens fan base in the sense that he's got talent. Biggest misconception about him is that he's fast. Um, He's not. You know, for a player his size, you would think that speed would be the biggest element that would get him around the ice and enable him to be at this level. The fact that he has good hockey sense and great skills and great offensive instincts allows him to navigate that he's not as fast as he could be. Uh, It's something he needs to work on. I think it would be an element that would allow him to stay in the lineup more often than not. He's polarizing in the sense that Canadians fans obsess over the fourth line of the team and feel that they'd rather have a scoring punch on that line versus uh, a Nick Delorier or a Michael Chaput or a Kenny Agostino. You know, Claude Julien looks for an identity with his fourth line, which is that he wants them to play in the offensive zone as much as possible in terms of keeping good talent hemmed into their own end with a strong forecheck and a cycle, and and right now he's found that identity with those three players I just mentioned, and the idea that Charlie Don is a better option for that line doesn't wash with me. Uh, if Charlie O'Donnell is going to play, it should be around your third line where you still have that scoring kind of edge, and that's what you're looking for. And right now he's playing with in it and Jesperi Kokaniemi, the problem for Charlie Udon is that Paul Byron's a better option. And Paul Byron, who's been out for the last month with an injury, is coming back and he will definitely be back. And no one's going to argue that Charlie Udon is going to be a better option for those lines. Now, what will happen is they'll start arguing that he's a better option for a line with Max Domi and Jonathan Drouet than Andrew Shaw is. But I disagree with that too. Andrew Shaw is a guy who's going to dig out pucks and do a lot of the dirty work and be the guy in front of the net, and that's where you score goals, and he's got eight of them already as of the time of this recording. So, you know, Charlie Houdon, his future in Montreal is questionable, Uh, and it really comes down to the fact that most teams, if they're dressing a, a third or fourth line, they really have to, if he's not scoring, they really have to question what he's doing. Even if you're scoring... 20 goals you're scoring in 20 games of an 82 game season uh, or maybe even less so uh, what are you doing for those other 60 that's that's always the question and you have to consider what you're looking for the identity you're looking for when it comes to a guy like that and i think right now he's gonna have a hard time staying in this lineup and a hard time staying with the canadians but he could be appealing to other teams with the type of talent that he has because he could if he puts it together he could be a really solid offensive player in this league. He could be a 20-goal a scorer in this league. There's no doubt in my mind about that with the talent he has. It's just about opportunity and where he ends up playing. Uh, you asked about Nick Sherback boy, it's really much more up in the air with him. Uh, You know, like, you watch this team a lot. I'm sure you have your own impressions of... of
1: Flashes from him, for sure. But, I mean, I feel like it's the writ large version of what you just said about Houdon. I mean, he just has... The knock on him has always been uh, consistency. No one's ever questioned him having puck skills. I just wonder if what he's shown will be enough to get a long-term look.
0: This is going to sound harsh. I have serious doubts about... Nikita Sherback's ability to, to break through at this level. And that's a tough thing to say about a player who's over a point-per-game player in the AHL. His skill is abundant. He's got tons of it. He's one of the only players on this team who could drive a player wide one-on-one and get to the net and make a move that will inevitably end up in a goal. Yeah. My problem with Sherback is that his sense doesn't bring out his skill. He can move fast but he's rarely moving fast because he's not in the right places to take advantage of his speed. He can score goals but doesn't find himself in the right places to make that happen. He can break out effectively with the skills that he has from the wing uh, and help the Canadians move with control up the ice, but he rarely puts himself in the right place to do that, and then when he gets the puck, he overthinks it. Hockey sense, to me, is the most important quality – and everybody covets different things. You know, I think most scouts would argue that speed is the most important element in this game. But you could be the fastest player if you don't know how to use your speed properly. You can't play in this game. I think that's the issue with Nikita Sherback. I think the Canadians see it clearly. I think they know that they can hide it on the wing where he plays. But who are you taking out of this lineup well, to insert him? It. Yeah, sure. and, and this is not, let's face it, this is not the best lineup in the National Hockey League, not even close. And I really, at 23 years old, have doubts if Nikita Sherbak has an NHL future. And I really have doubts that he has one with the Canadians.
1: Well, one guy who factors enormously into the future is Jonathan Drouin. We've seen him now for a year and a quarter, I guess, basically here. So what are your overall impressions of him? I think, I mean, let's just throw last year out the out the window. It was bad for everyone. He was asked to adjust the center. It clearly didn't work. But what have you seen this year from him? And based on that, do you think... I mean, the analogy I always use with Drouin is Montreal needs him to be what Phil Kessel was to the Leafs. He's not going to win the Selkie. But he's a guy who has enough talent to once or twice a game make the other team go uh-oh, and he's got to be someone who at the very least is giving you high-end offensive production. Is he tracking that now?
0: Yeah, here's what I like about Jonathan Duray. I'm going to get all that out of the way before I say something that sure might be a sure. little disparaging about him. When the games get harder, he plays better. That's an important quality, and you, know, you saw it in Tampa Bay when he had 14 points in 17 playoff games, and you've seen it, flashes of it here where this start to the season was extremely important to the canadians and though he got off slow in the first couple of games uh he produced at over a point per game for the majority of the next 18 or so so you know i think he's trending towards a 70 point season around that playing with Domi, they complement each other extremely well he's so skilled he can break a game wide open on any given play uh and when when the games get tougher like a couple of weeks ago against the boston bruins he was the best player on the ice. Yeah. So all that is, is good. So here's the bat. He's a threat at both ends of the ice. He's a really dangerous offensive player. And defensively, you really can't understand sometimes where his effort level is. Because it's, that's what it comes down to. It's not like he doesn't have the sense to play well defensively. and right. he, You'll see several times in, throughout the season and in games. He makes... Great back checks. He will he'll, he'll make a great back check and break up a play and pickpocket a guy, I'll let that you know, like he does it. We know he's capable of it. But the consistency level in that part of his game is lacking. And when the puck gets hemmed into the zone, uh, his effort level wanes a little bit and and not because he's cheating offensively, but because his mind is Drifting. When are we going to get the puck and go? That's got to drive Claude Julien nuts.
1: I mean, any coach does.
0: The other thing that that drives Claude Julien nuts is is the junior plays. The plays where you're making it, where he's making it a little bit more complicated than it needs to be, coming up the ice, coming over the line. And when he does stuff like that, he becomes a harder player to play with. He should be an easy player to play with with the skill he has and the vision and the ability and his anticipation. But if you can't predict what he's going to do, he becomes harder to play with. And there's times where he tries to do things that you just can't get away with in this league. It just doesn't work. That said, you know he knows what his ability is more than anybody else does, not the scouts or the coaches or anybody. He knows what he's capable of doing. And he's a guy that if you get to know him, he's a great guy, by the way. And I think loves being here. He loves being here, and he's the biggest hockey nerd you will ever meet. If if Milan Lucic studies the game intently, if... Uh, like Mark Shifley. There are a lot of players who are not sitting at home watching hockey on a nightly basis when they play it. This guy watches hockey every night and studies what everyone's doing and constantly wants to be a better player. And... People have to remember that he's he just turned 23 too. Like he's he's a young player with not that much experience under his belt. He hasn't hit the 300 game mark, which Shane Doan mentioned to me when I was talking to him about Domi earlier in the summer. You know, the 300 game mark is that mark where you finally understand everything it means to be a pro, and that's why he felt that Domi was going to break out in Montreal at a 222 games. These 80 games would be pivotal in, in letting us know what kind of player Domi was going to be. If he was going to be the guy who struggled with nine goals, two straight seasons after a great 18-goal, 60-plus point rookie season with Arizona. Or was he going to be the guy that we're seeing in Montreal right now? And I think, I think we have the answer. Like, we have the answer on that. And Jure is not there yet in terms of his experience. But we're seeing... A much better version than what we saw a year ago, which you're right should be thrown out, given the expectations and and the unfairness of being thrown to the wolves up the middle with on a team that was
1: awful. yeah,
0: he has that potential to be a better player, and he has the drive to make himself better, but it's clear there are areas where he needs to improve, and potentially he may not be able to overcome all of his faults Mr. Angles. This has been fun, thanks so much oh, always a pleasure.
1: So, Rory, curious to get your take. I mean, I do think there are some great things going on with Montreal. Their prospect pool looks way better than it did. Domi's been a surprise. Druin has looked good. But do you kind of look at the division they're in and go, it doesn't matter, though, because how are you going to get past the Leafs? How are you going to get past Tampa yeah. Bay? I mean, that's in my mind, that's still the rationale for some kind of full teardown is you— You're just not going to be able to get past these teams that are running Stamkos, Point, Hedman, Tavares, Mm -hmm. Matthews, Marner out there without
2: something special. Yeah, I mean, look at the Boston Bruins right now. They've been decimated by injuries, and they're still ahead of the Montreal Canadiens in in the standings. Uh, So when they get fully healthy, look out. And if, if Buffalo actually is for real, it's really hard to see a Those are serious, serious studs. Yeah, for sure. And uh, it's... (laughs) I don't know how they're going to win a playoff series. Maybe the best thing for them to do is to get that first wild card and then maybe you play the top team in the Metro. I mean, at least that's a, an easier path through yeah. the first round, potentially, if you're playing Washington or Columbus or and maybe something happens with Pittsburgh and they surge and they get it. Who knows? We'll see. Um, but as for getting any further than that, uh, I, I, I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you envision maybe that. Maybe a former... Hawks management team member, Mark Bergevin, should be trading sure. for Pat okay. hey, you know what? <laughs> and maybe, maybe Carey Price just finds Comes himself back. for Absolutely. a couple of weeks and anything can happen.
1: I, I definitely wouldn't bet against the next five years of Price still being very, very, very elite. Well, we we'll hope you enjoyed this edition of Tape to Tape. Don't forget, you can always check out the podcast on Sportsnet, subscribe In iTunes, it's December, friends, so stay tuned. We're going to have some World Junior chat, tell you what prospects fans of Canadian teams should be keeping an eye out for at the WJC, and it's just about time for some bold 2019 predictions. So all that stuff coming up in the next few weeks. Check out Rory Boylan on Twitter, at Rory Boylan, myself, at Dixon on Sports, and check back next week for more glass rattling hockey action on Tape to Tape.
2: Memorize these funny place names. Walla Walla, Keokuk, Cucamonga, Seattle.
0: (laughs) Stop it, you're killing me. (laughs) Ah, Seattle.